It's a pleasure to see you all again. It's nice to see the ones who braved the snowstorm this morning. Um, it was very, very... It was nothing really, was it? We all over, overreact. Um, if you've not met me before, my name's Jack. I'm a youth leader here at King's Church. I lead our Friday night infusion youth group um, as well as doing our Sunday morning fusion youth group, which is sort of the upper primary school, lower secondary school ages. Um, And we have great fun doing that. Uh, But this morning, uh, I get to continue our series in the real Jesus today. Um, I'm not feeling great this morning, so this is going to be interesting. I'm dosed up on day nurse, but uh, God is still with us, so we're going to be all right. Um, We're on the real Jesus, and it's part 41 this week. And we're in Matthew chapter 18. Um, If you haven't got a Bible but you'd like one, Ron is at the back and he's got red Bibles in his hands. So if you just stick your hand up and he will bring you one. And if you've got one of our church red Bibles, this is page 985. Now while you turn there, I just want to ask you a quick question. How would you define greatness? The question should come up on the screen so that we can all... See it? If it doesn't, it doesn't matter. But how would you define greatness? What, what makes that quality which so many people desire, that so many people in the world want? What defines greatness? Is it high achievements? Is it doing well at your job? Is it becoming the best in your particular field of expertise? Is it becoming the boss so that you can tell people what to do? Is that what makes us great? Well, here in Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 14 today, we're going to see what the real Jesus has to say about greatness. And we're actually going to see that he's probably got a different view to what the world, you or even I would say about greatness. And um, in the background, before we read this passage, we, uh, we're told a bit more in Mark's gospel about what happens before here. And we actually see that the disciples um, are kind of ha- arguing among one another. They're, they're arguing over who really is the greatest, who's the best, who's top dog. And in Luke's account, we see that Jesus knows their thoughts. And between the disciples, there's been this brewing notion of greatness, of superiority. Who's the best? And it's starting to lead to arguments. It's starting to lead to them arguing among one another. And it was getting so strong that they end up having to go to Jesus to ask, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And the response that the real Jesus gives us in this passage that we're going to look at shows us that the kingdom of heaven does not work in the way that the world's view of greatness works. It doesn't work according to the world's values. The kingdom of heaven does not measure greatness in the way that men and women measure greatness. In the kingdom of heaven, we're going to see that it's back to front, it's upside down, that the greatest are measured by lowliness. And we're going to see that Jesus has three responses to this question of who is the greatest. So let's read the passage together. Matthew chapter 18 and starting in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I'll tell you the truth. 
Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of, the, because of that things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? If he finds it, I tell you the truth. He is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. And in the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any one of these little ones should be lost. Right, before we really dig in, I'm just going to pray. Father, I thank you so much that like we were singing, we can, we can focus our eyes on Jesus this morning. And Father, I pray for each and every one of us here this morning that we would hear about you and that we would focus our eyes again on the real Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would speak to each and every one of us here this morning. And that you would help me, as we go through this Bible passage, to speak your words. This is your time, Jesus. Use it as you will. Amen. Okay, so let's look at the first of the three responses that Jesus gives to this question of greatness. And the first response we see is that he says we're to be humble like little children. That we are to be humble like little children. He says that the greatest are those who become like small children. When the disciples asked Jesus the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The first thing that Jesus does, the real Jesus does, is he he calls over a little child. Come over here. And he gets this little child and he stands them in the middle of this rabble. I mean, picture the scene for a moment. Really, really imagine it. There's, There's Peter there. Who's the, who's the gruff one? He's the lively one. He's the one who speaks first and thinks later. And he's there going, I'm the leader of the bunch. Just a couple of weeks ago, Jesus told me I'm the rock on which he's going to build the church. I'm the leader. Surely I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then at that moment, you know, Matthew, the tax collector, stands up going, no, no, no. Look, Peter, here we're talking about the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of heaven, there's going to be great treasures that we can't even imagine. They're going to need an administrator to catalogue it, to look after it, and to know where everything is. I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then there's John, one of the other disciples. He somewhat humbly stands up and he goes, do you know what? 
I'm the one Jesus loves. I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so these disciples, they're, they're bantering among each other. No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. And they're arguing. And it gets to the point where they have to ask Jesus. These rough and ready fishermen and tax collectors and guys from all different backgrounds are arguing over who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And they ask Jesus and he calls over this small child. And he gets him to stand in the middle of this rabble. The very act of what Jesus is doing here, it's a rebuke. It's a telling off. Taking this child and sticking it in the middle of these 12 guys, it's, it's an object lesson that Jesus is using to show them that they've got the complete wrong end of the stick. They've missed the point. And Jesus says in verse 3, I tell you the truth. Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you see the contrast there? The disciples, they're they're arguing among one another, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They eventually come to Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus? And Jesus says, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven unless you change. Jesus' point here, it's obvious. It's, it's blatant. He's saying you cannot be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven unless you first enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says the way you enter the kingdom of heaven is by completely changing. There's no other way. But what's the change that Jesus is talking about? Well, the disciples, they're going in the wrong way of their thinking. They're arguing over who's first, who's best, who's greatest, who's the top dog, who's the one who's worthy of all the applause of heaven, who's the one that everyone will be looking to. And the world today around us, many of us here today, we're also going the wrong way, the wrong direction, with the pursuit of greatness. Things like power, popularity, possessions and wealth. Greatness is highly desired all around us in the world. We all want to be known as somebody. We all want to be seen as a great person. If you don't believe me, you just have to look at the sheer amounts of people and their thousands applying for things like The X Factor or all those other rubbish shows that I don't actually watch. Um, So I want to ask you this morning. Have you been thinking about greatness? Have you been thinking about how you want to be somebody? The greatest at your job or your career? Aspiring to do well. It's not, it's not a bad thing, but it can be dangerous when you start to say things like, if only I can get there. If only I could be the best at that. If only people could see how great I really am. And in our rush to get in the pursuit of greatness, we can often run straight past the entrance to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says to these guys, you're going the wrong way. You need to change. You need to turn around and become humble like little children. Now really quickly, I just want to clarify one thing. Little children are not naturally humble, okay? 
the ones of you smirking are parents, and you, you know this, don't you? I've discovered over the last few years of working for Kings and volunteering in the kids' work of different ages and things, I've discovered that probably the most popular words with children are mine, now, shut up, you know. It's just, I think, oh no. Kids want everything on demand. They want it now. The world revolves around them. Often, I'm not going to name names, but often kids can be whiny, bratty, annoying. Why am I leading the kids' work? Uh, I, I do enjoy it most of the time, but sometimes. And, and I'm sure some of you parents have to go home and go, do you know what? Kids, they really are a gift from the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. The fact you're laughing tells me it's true. You do it all the time. But little children, it was different in Jesus' day. It was different back then. Back then, they didn't have a status in society. They weren't prized. They weren't valued like they are today. Children were seen and not heard. Unless someone was providing for them, they're completely helpless. They have no rights and they had no legal standing in Jesus' day. When Jesus says, become like little children... To enter the kingdom of heaven. When he says that the cost of the kingdom of heaven is becoming humble like a little child, what he's saying is unless you become insignificant, unless you become someone who stops depending upon yourself, your own efforts, unless you abandon your self worth, your entitlement, your self appointed entitlement. Unless you turn from these things, humble yourself and act like a small child, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. And this becomes really clear in verse 4, when Jesus says, he points it out clearly, Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Humility for Jesus is true greatness. The humble, the lowly of heart, they're the ones who are exalted in the kingdom of heaven. It's not the strong, it's not the braggers, it's not the high achievers or the worldly wise, but those who are like little children in Jesus' day. Those who say, I've got no standing, I've got nothing in myself to depend on. And this has been the teaching from the real Jesus all the way through Matthew's gospel as we've been going through as a church. You might remember way back in Matthew chapter 5 verse 3, right at the start of what, what's known as the Sermon on the Mount with the, the Beatitudes. How does Jesus start it? He starts this by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs shall be the kingdom of heaven. And in a few weeks time, we're going to see it again in Matthew chapter 20. In Matthew chapter 20... Jesus is going to say, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying, you've got to be humble like little children. But he's also saying, you've got to be humble like me. 
And in that chapter 20, what Jesus does there is he actually binds together the life of his people with his own life and pattern. He shows people that to be great, you have to be like him. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you've not decided to follow Jesus with all your life, have you ever thought about how humble Jesus is? If you're here and you are a Christian, you're a member of King's Church, have you ever really thought about how humble Jesus is? Have you ever really thought that he's great because he was meek and lonely of heart? In Philippians chapter 2, we're told, Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient, even to death on a cross. Imagine that. The king of glory, the king of all creation, gave his life as a ransom, as a payment to purchase his people. Who would imagine that God himself would be so humble? In his humility, the real Jesus took upon himself our likeness, our frailty, our weakness, our nature, which shrouded and disguised who he really was in his glory and in his power. In his humility, the real Jesus obeyed perfectly the law that he himself had given, the same law which each and every one of us has failed to keep. In his humility, the real Jesus suffered ridicule and rejection, abuse and slander, beating and cursing, and even mocking from the mouths of people which he created to give him worship. In his humility, the real Jesus suffered the wrath of God the Father against sin, even though he himself knew no sin. In humility, Jesus purchased those who sinned against him with his own blood. And even now, in the real Jesus, in humility, we're told in Hebrews, is sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven, interceding for us. In his amazing humility, the real Jesus has lowered himself to save sinners. But not only that, he died and rose again to take those sinners and to change them. To join them to himself spiritually so that they can participate in his glory by becoming humble like little children. If the real Jesus has been so humble as to give himself for our sins, surely it's right and it, to humbly consider him, to look to him. Surely if the king of heaven has been so humble as to lay down his life to save us from our sins, surely it is right 
when he says, come, follow me, that we should lay down our lives and humbly give ourselves to him fully. It's humble and right to look at the real Jesus and to turn from your sin and to say, here I am. Here I am, Lord, save me. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, look at the humility of Jesus and consider him. Consider his work on the cross, the work that he did as the payment for your debt, as the, to credit you with his righteousness if you turn to him. Say to him, I depend on you. You need to humble yourself like a little child and say, there's nothing in and of myself that I can, I can use or give to you, but I depend on you to save me. I change my direction to depend no longer on myself, but to depend on you and the work you've done on the cross. You are the only saviour, the real Jesus, and I trust you. The real Jesus who had all, all, has all authority in heaven and on earth. He didn't come to, he, when he came, he didn't come to crush us, but to give himself for us. So that like little children humbly depend on someone else, we can humbly depend on him and his work. And verse 5, Jesus says, Whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. That's the main thing. Anyone who welcomes this little child welcomes me. Those who humble themselves don't just receive words of encouragement. They don't just receive some facts about Jesus who lived and died. They don't just receive those things, but they receive Jesus himself. That's the point, to receive Jesus. He's the one who's truly great because he was so humble. And you become the greatest of the kingdom of heaven when you humble yourself and you accept a little child because you receive Jesus. And then Jesus goes on in this passage to now use a play on words. He moves from saying this little one to refer to the child that he took and he stood before the disciples as an object lesson He goes from using little child to refer to that one to saying these little ones to refer to his disciples, to people who follow him. And right away, Jesus contrasts those who receive the little ones, his disciples, and and consequently who receive him with those in verse 6 who reject him. Those who receive the little ones receive Jesus himself, the real Jesus. But those who reject, they receive judgment. And it sounds horrific. Let's look at verse 6 together. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now that's not a very nice thing to say from Jesus, is it? It's not very PC. It's not, it sounds a bit harsh. But take a, take a moment and really think about what Jesus has said there. How horrible this death is. 
Jesus says to take a large millstone, and a millstone was a huge bit of rock that would have been pushed around and pulled about by donkeys to cause um, to grind wheat. Okay, and Jesus says, take this stone, which n- most normal people cannot lift or move. It requires big donkeys and and, and um, powerful. I was going to say machinery, but they're not machinery. Animals to to move these, and Jesus says that. That to die in your sin, rejecting these little ones, rejecting Jesus himself, causing these ones to stumble, it would be like having this large rock tied around your neck and being thrown into the sea. Now when I go swimming at the sea, my normal position is feet down, head up so I can breathe. If you had one of these millstones tied around your neck, if it didn't break your neck, you're going to be a complete other way up. You're going to be head down, feet up, and you're going to be being pulled down to the bottom of the sea. And as you go down, you'd be struggling, trying to break yourself free, but it would be impossible. There'd be no way you could get it off. And you'd be plummeting down deeper and deeper, starting to panic, holding your breath for as long as you can until you can't hold it any longer, and you suddenly take a huge gasp full of a lung full of air. Um, not air, that would be good but a large lung full of water, and you'd suddenly drown. It's horrific, it's horrible. And here's the point Jesus is making. He says appearing before God in judgment is worse than that. In verse 6, he says it would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and then lobbed into the sea. It would be better than to stand before God having rejected his little ones and rejected Jesus. It would be better to have such a death as that than to stand before a holy God. That's why we must humble ourselves like little children and trust the real Jesus who is the only shelter against the torrential rains of God's wrath. That's what happened on the cross. Christ was taking the torrent of God's wrath upon himself so that we, the people of God, can know him. So that we, all those in Christ who have turned to follow Jesus with the rest of their life in faith, can depend on him now and face God not as a judge, but as a father. As a father who's credited us with Jesus' righteousness. A father who views us not as slaves, but as children, sons and daughters, adopted into his family, so that we may now have life and life to the full. And we see that this life leads on to a holy life that defeats sin. This is the second response to Jesus' question. And don't worry, the next two that I've got are nowhere near as long as the first one. Verses 8 and 9. Jesus says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fires of hell. 
Jesus is using a powerful picture here, an imagery which is kind of all based on warfare against sin, where we, where we start to live holy lives, living um, in the likeness of Christ. That's not a wrong part of my notes. There we go. Um, the moment we believe in the real Jesus, we're what's, what theologians call justified. We have a good standing before God. God sees us as perfect, blameless as Jesus himself. When we trust in Jesus, that's what happened. You cannot have any better standing before God than that very moment when you call upon the real Jesus to rescue you from your sins and to save you. We're fully declared righteous in God's sight. And new life starts to burst forth like seeds um, bursting out of the ground with flowers displaying um, a new holy life where we become more like Jesus. And here in Matthew 18, Jesus is using the same language that he used back in chapter 5 about fighting against the sin of adultery and lust by plucking out your eye and lopping off an arm. John Owen, an old Puritan, describes it like this. Be killing sin or sin be killing you. The Christian life is a life of warfare against sin, of battling against temptation to do wrong and to become more like Jesus in our daily lives. And Jesus here in this passage, he's not saying literally cut off a limb, okay? There was an early church father, a guy called Origen, who made that very mistake. He'd um, been a bit naughty, gone a bit wrong, so he decided to castrate himself. Reading the Bible well and correctly can stop you from making some very painful mistakes. Okay? Here Jesus doesn't mean castrate yourself or perform an amputation on your body, but instead deny yourself those things which cause you to stumble into sin. Deny the very things which cause you to struggle in your following of the real Jesus. By killing sin and living a more holy life with the work of the Holy Spirit in us, examining our thoughts, feelings and motives and actions, we become more like the real Jesus himself. So let me ask you the question this morning. How are you doing at killing sin in your life? Are you putting sin to death? Are you cutting off and gouging out those things in your life that cause you to stumble as you follow Jesus? I'm not going to give you a rundown of a list of things that might be causing you to stumble. But you know, and God knows, what's causing you in stopping following him. And I believe that even as I'm speaking, that God may be speaking to some of you here this morning about particular things that are causing you to stumble, that you need to cut off and get rid of as you pursue Jesus and following him. So to be great in the kingdom of heaven, we have to be humble like little children, have holy lives where we're defeating sin and getting rid of it. And the third thing we see is we help others. We help others. 
God cares for those who are struggling. God cares for those who are finding it difficult in following him. And this is clear in the last section, verse 10. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hill and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. And in the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. This links right in with the holy life that we were talking about before because your sin doesn't just affect you. Your sin has profound effect on others around you as well. Back in the early sections of verses 6 right the way through 9, Jesus is actually really concerned with how our sin affects others and causes other people to stumble, other sheep to wander off to use his later Um, illustration and metaphor in verse 6 Jesus actually says but if anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin if anyone causes one of my disciples to stumble to fall into sin so I want to ask you are you living a helpful life for others pursuing Jesus are you rejoicing in Jesus grace have you thought about how there may be things in your life which might act as a hindrance, as a stumbling block to others that might cause a sheep to wander away from the pack. Did you know that Christianity uh, is it's not an individual sport, it's a team sport. When we're, we're saved, we're saved into the people of God. We're like a lone sheep that's put into the flock. And... You, A flock's better together than it is apart. A wolf's going to go for the one that's on its own, not the one that's in the big pack together, the flock together. And as the people of God, we should be encouraging each other to experience Jesus' grace more fully. And we should be uh, encouraging one another to communicate with God more deeply. We should share the same care that Christ has shown to us in with others So when a sheep goes wandering off, we look after them. We seek after them like God sought after us. For example, it might mean just watch your speech around others. Does what you're saying to people in your small group and in church and others around you, does it encourage people to depend on God's grace more? Does it reveal the good news of the real Jesus and what he's done for us by being seasoned with grace and love? Or is it saturated with more law, with more do's, don'ts? Is it all, to, all do's and don'ts or is it Jesus has died for us to save us from our sins and it depends on him rather than us? Speech is just one area. We can think of all areas of our life, all different things that we can think of. Does it help encourage people Does it stop people from stumbling or wandering away? Your life is an example to others. Other Christians, are you helping them in their pursuit after Jesus? Or are you just laying down a stumbling block for them to trip over? Jesus wants us to have helpful lives. 
So to end with, are we great people? How do you now define greatness? Is greatness measured by our own achievements? Or is greatness measured by the achievements of the real Jesus on that cross at Calvary? Are we humble like little children, embracing insignificance in order to trust in Jesus and possess greatness in the kingdom of heaven? Are we living holy lives where we're cutting out things that tempt us to sin and are we pursuing Christ and are we helping others in that? To have a deeper love, passion and engagement to God. How do you now define greatness? Is it in the real Jesus? Because if it isn't, you've missed it. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that true greatness is found in Jesus. I want to thank you that true humility was found in Jesus. I find it absolutely amazing that you would send your son to come down and become a man to live a life on earth, to be mocked, beaten, so that we could be saved from our sins, so that we could live holy lives and become like you. I find that amazing and I thank you so much for that. Father, I pray for us here this morning that we would go away living humble lives, looking to you, where we are living our holy lives, cutting out sin, and helping others to pursue after you more. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're done, guys. I think there's tea and coffee at the back. Um, Enjoy the rest of the day, and hope there's no more snow.